0: An overarching theme in the book of Philippians is this theme and this thread of joy, and the way in which Paul defines joy throughout the book of Philippians is joy that is not necessarily synonymous with circumstances. Remember, he's writing this about joy from prison. He mentions that concept and that word at least 16 times, almost always in the imperative in the book of of Philippians. Last week, we looked at a classic passage from Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. A pretty radical statement. He said, look, I want to live for Christ. That's great. But if I die, it doesn't matter. It's a gain. And we reflected upon what all things, what are the other things that we live for. Life to us is blank. And we were challenged, if you will, on the ROI of the things that we put our investments in for life, right? What is the return on our investments when we think about our faith and our life and the foundation that we're building upon? And what Paul is saying is, the ROI of the gospel is better because it endures forever, Keeping with this same theme of joy, thinking about life in Christ, what Paul calls us to this morning from Philippians chapter 2 is not only to live in Christ, but more specifically to live like Christ. So we live in Christ, and living in Christ calls us to living like Christ. Stand with me, if you will, for the New Testament reading from the sermon this morning, Philippians chapter 2, often referred to throughout history, verses 5 through 11, is the Christ hymn. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning simply that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I found myself this past week being fascinated with the results of the most recent Boston Marathon, which happened this past Monday. I'm a sucker for endurance sports. Uh, I try to participate in them some myself, whether it be running, cycling, triathlons, etc. But this past week, the Boston Marathon, having known some people from Knoxville that were running in it, I was interested to read about the results of it just in general, but then also more specifically was interested to read the results knowing that the temperature at the start of the race was the lowest the temperature had been in 30 years in the start of that race. It was raining 18 to 20 mile an hour winds in the low 30s there uh, in New England for this greatest race really in the world. It's amazing, actually, that five in the women's division, five out of the top six runners were Americans. In fact, an American woman won the Boston Marathon for the first time in over 20 years. That's amazing She's actually a professional runner, though not one of the ones that was really predicted to win it. But I found myself being more fascinated by the next four out of the next five places in the race by these other Americans, none of whom really anybody that keeps up with these things had ever even heard of. The woman that came in second, Sarah Sellers, is a full time nurse. She trains at 4 a.m in 7 p.m. every day, has only run one other marathon in her entire life, and came in second. She talked about as she was approaching the last couple miles, feeling so humbled as she passed other runners who essentially were heroic to her. She was such a non-factor in the elite aspect of the race that she wasn't even on the front bus headed to the starting line. Equally as fascinating is the girl, Jessica Chichester, who came in fifth. This story is equally fascinating to me. Not only was she not considered one of the elite runners, not only was she not considered one who would win it, not only was she not on the first bus or the second bus or the third bus, she wasn't even in the first wave to start the race. The only reason they knew she came in fifth was from her chip, not when she actually crossed the finish line, as in she did not cross the finish line fifth in actuality. She crossed the finish line fifth by way of time, and nobody had any idea who she was. And since she wasn't considered to be in the elite category, she didn't even get to take the money, 15,000, that she won from coming in fifth. This past year's race was unconventional, to say the least, and inspiring, to say the least. Well, when we look at Philippians chapter 2 this morning, we see Paul painting an unbelievable picture of a king who is unconventional and who is inspiring. We see a leader outlined in Philippians chapter 2 that no one else would have seen as victorious. We see a person embodied in Christ, characterized by things that normally kings and leaders and people that are awe-inspiring do not possess. As I said in the beginning, Paul is calling us to be like this king. Paul is calling us to be like this victor. Paul is calling us, like Christ, to be unconventional. Paul is calling us, like Christ, to be countercultural. You see, that's what it means, actually, to be a Christian. It literally means, it was actually used as a derogatory term in the first century, little Christ. And Paul is calling those who want to know Christ to be like Christ. A little bit below that overarching level, Paul, more specifically in Philippians chapter 2, is calling us to be like Christ and having unity with each other. Paul outlines for us saying, You are called to have one mind, one body, one vision, not unlike the baptism canticle that we just sang. Paul is calling the church, Christ people, to be like Christ and to be unified. To have union with each other rooted in union with Christ. That's the big idea in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says you are to be united to each other through your union with Christ. You see, unity and community is really what we all long for. It's the most distinctive thing in many ways about what the church is supposed to be. For countless years now in vocational ministry, over 20 years leading different groups, whether it be churches or campus ministries, etc., almost without fail, when I ask people why they are connected to the group they are connected to, their answer has something to do with community, something to do with connection with others. And Paul is exhorting us this morning to be like Christ as we are connected to each other. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great martyr from Germany and who was a Christian, suffered martyrdom under Hitler's Nazi reign in his classic book, Life Together, says this about Christian community. Christian community is not an ideal, we have to realize, but rather a reality created by God in Christ in which many participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our community is in Jesus Christ alone, the more calmly we will learn to think about our community and pray and hope for it. Eugene Peterson, who's a theologian and writer, translator of The Message, said this, One of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I. Are instead of my. Us instead of me. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 is calling us to us not calling us to me. The way that I want us to unpack this concept and this call to Christ-like unity is for us to see that we are prideful, to expose and to repent of our pride, and then secondly, to embrace this call to humility. So we're called to Christ-like unity, overarchingly. In order to experience Christ-like unity, we must see our pride exposed And we must embrace humility. Let's look at this idea of pride, which is really spoken against by words of exhortation in verses 1 through 4. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by doing this, by not acting out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. According to Philippians chapter 2, pride is selfish ambition. It is conceit. It is elevating ourself among others. It is seeking our own interest among others. And pride is poisonous for a community. Pride is is poisonous for a home. Pride is poisonous for a workplace. Pride is poisonous in a marriage. Pride is poisonous in friendships. Pride is poisonous in the political realm. And Paul is calling us out of pride and he's calling us into humility. Thomas Aquinas said, Inordinate self-love is the cause of every sin. Inordinate self-love is the call of every sin. Augustine, Dante, and Milton all said the devil's rebellion was rooted in pride. T.S. Eliot at the front of your bulletin. Most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. Not to oversimplify foreign policy, but is this not true? Most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be self-important. G.K. Chesterton said this, if I could only preach one sermon, it would be a sermon about pride. Because you see, we can talk about sin and we can talk about brokenness and we can reflect upon the fact that we're not the way we're supposed to be living in the world, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And all of that brokenness and all of what that, which the Bible calls sin, really is rooted in this idea of pride. In many ways, you could look at Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind with Adam and Eve and say that was fueled by pride. Pride, like all sin, is absurd. And pride, like all sin, does not unify, but it isolates and it separates. I'm struck by this on a myriad of levels. You know, preachers are always seeking to find illustrations to be able to connect certain points. Well, it's just not that hard to find illustrations on pride. For whatever reason, I was led in my studies and thinking this week to the 1977 interview series with David Frost and Richard Nixon on the heels of Watergate when we think about pride. I want to read to you a couple excerpts from the Frost-Nixon interviews in this historic collapse of a presidency in 1977 from the Watergate scandal. David Frost infamously asked this question to Richard Nixon. Are you really saying that the president can do something illegal? You know what Nixon's response was? I'm saying that when the president does it It means that it's not illegal. David Frost says, I'm sorry? What did you just say? Later in the interview, Nixon maybe explains that response more when he says this. Speaking to David Frost. That's our tragedy, you and I, Mr. Frost. No matter how high we get, they still look down at us. No matter how many awards or column inches are written about us or how high the elected office is, it's still not enough. We still feel like the little man, the loser. They told us we were a hundred times. The high ups, the well-born, the peoples who respect we really want, really craved. And isn't that why we work so hard now? Isn't that why we fight for every inch? scrambling our way up in undignified fashion, if we're honest for a minute, if we reflect privately just for a moment, if we allow ourselves a glimpse into that shadowy place we call our soul, isn't it why we are here now, the two of us, looking for a way back into the sun, into the limelight, back onto the winner's podium? Pride really does come before the fall. What do we do with this reality of pride? I don't think I have to work too hard to convince you that we love ourselves more than we love others. I don't think I have to work too hard to convince you that we are conceited. That we are ambitious primarily for ourselves. And oftentimes we will do any and everything with regard to ethics, morality, and the lack of love to others and culture to put ourselves Back on the winner's podium and in the limelight. I would simply ask us to admit that, to confess that we're prideful, to understand on a deeper level that pride is rooted in insecurity. Because you see, what pride is, is making a name for ourselves. And if we feel the pressure to make a name for ourselves, what does that insinuate? We don't have a name. And so we must make a name. We must prove ourselves. We must embrace the reality that we are longing for affirmation. And we must see, religiously speaking, that pride is the manifestation. Or self-righteousness is the manifestation of pride. Pride in and of itself is going to tear apart God's community. Pride in and of itself is about the least Christ-like thing that we could embody. And so Paul is calling us out of pride. But then secondly, if we want to be like Christ and we want to experience the unity that Christ longs for us to experience with Him and with others, we expose and repent of pride and selfish ambition and conceit. But then, encouragingly, we embrace this radical, unconventional concept called humility. It's what we see in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. And the way that we're going to do this, if pride has us looking at ourselves, humility has us looking at Christ. And I'll confess to you this morning, if we don't look and focus on Christ, not only now, but each week, then you ought not to come. Paul says his mission was to preach Christ and Him crucified. I think it's a waste of your time and my time if our focus and central point is not on Christ, not only here, but always. And here, very specifically in Philippians 2, Paul calls us to focus on Christ. Paul calls us to be centered upon Christ. Christ. Let me ask you this as we reflect and unpack this in a little more detail. If I were to ask you whether you're a Christian or not, what is the most defining characteristic of a Christian? I wonder what you would answer. Christians primarily are characterized by not doing certain things. Christians primarily are characterized by their view of blank education or their view of culture. Christians primarily are characterized by jumping through various religious hoops. Christians are primarily characterized by, well, if we look at Scripture, if we had to say, this is hard, it's a hard question, in some ways it's a trick question, If we had to, by looking in Scripture, define or see what the crowning characteristic of a Christian is, I would submit to you, it would have to be humility. This is summarized in various ways. I can't help but to think about the prophet Micah, when Micah says, look, here's the deal. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's pretty simple. It has nothing to do with politics or education or doing this and not doing that per se. This is what it means to be a Christian. To love justice. To show mercy. And to walk humbly. Love justice. Show mercy. And to walk humbly. David expounds upon this in a little more detail in Psalm 51 after his historic collapse Right? Like the great David of the Old Testament, the man after God's own heart. Let's be like David. Wrong. Let's be like David, the adulterer and the murderer. Though we can be encouraged that there are no heroic men and women in Scripture at the end of the day, that God is always the hero. But what we see in David in Psalm 51 is he's confessing his sin. He's running through this litany and it's a beautiful confession. And at one point towards the end of the Psalm, David says, if you wanted sacrifice, I would give it. If you wanted me to worship in such a way, I would do it. In fact, I will do anything practically that you want. But then David gets the gospel and he says, however, I know what you really want. In fact, the only thing you ask of me, is to have a broken and a contrite heart. The crowning characteristic of what it means to be a Christian is to be one who is humble. And there was and there is no one that embodies this reality more than Christ. Look at our text in verse 5. It's right there in your bulletin. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form, Greek word morph or morphe, it's in the form of God, in the very nature of God. This is this mystery of Christ's deity. Be hard to find a more explicit and more robust presentation of Christ's deity in all of Scripture than what Paul does here in this Christ hymn who was in the very nature God, fully God, fully man. He was a ruler and a slave. Want to talk about unconventional? Having this mind among yours, which is Christ, who is in the form, the morph of God, but did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped. The Greek word there speaks of something to be grasped. He did not count equality with God to be grasped. Why? Because he was God. And because he had it already, it was not something as in an object to be grasped. A Greek word study tells us, it's as if this, have you ever felt like relationally in life that you're fighting to get into a room That you're already in. In fact I would say many of our relationships. Are characterized by that kind of insecurity. We're fighting. To get into a room. That we're already in. And what this text is saying is. Christ is not. Fighting to get into the room. Of God. Because he's already in. He is. God. The text goes on. But emptied himself. Greek word kenosis. Potentially the most powerful Greek word in the New Testament. Save only tetelestai. It is finished on the cross. Kenosis. What does kenosis mean? It means that Christ emptied himself. What does it mean to be humble? It means to empty oneself. What does it mean It means to take on the very nature of a servant. It's not so much that Christ lost anything in kenosis. It's that Christ gained slavehood and servanthood. Because he was humble. Practically, what does this mean to us? That was... Some theological reflection on these texts with regard to humility. Practically, what do we do with humility and how do we put this into practice in our lives? The first thing we do in realizing is that humility is effective. Jim Collins, in his classic work, Good to Great, which studies high functioning, effective, financially solid, stable companies, identifies key characteristics, and he did this actually in a downturn in the economy, and what elevated certain companies above other companies, and he outlined various characteristics that made companies not just good, but great. You know what the primary distinctive factor was that made companies not just good, but great? It wasn't the only factor, but it was the primary factor. They had a level five leader. And you know what was the crowning characteristic of a level 5 leader in corporate America that made companies not just good but great? Guess. Humility. Humility is not only something that we're exhorted to biblically and spiritually. There's an amazing effectiveness to humility. Cross-reference, Jesus. But we'll get to that at the end a little bit more. Another thing about humility is that it's deeply attractive. I don't like that there's a lot of things wrong with the church. And I hope I don't talk about it too much. But we are, if we are not self-critical. And if we are not self-reflective. We will die. And in fact we are dying. In many ways. In the western world. That's not true throughout the eastern part of the world. And in many countries. There's a massive wave and movement. Of the historic Christian gospel. And it's fascinating. But not so much here in America. Where Christendom has died. And it's died for many reasons. But surely one of the reasons. Is that the church. And Christians. Are prideful. And self-righteous. And judgmental. And as a result of that. Unattractive. C.S. Lewis says this. About what real humility is. In mere Christianity. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be sort of a greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed like a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you were saying to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone Who seems to enjoy life so easily? He will not be thinking about humility. In fact, he will not be thinking about himself at all. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Genuine humility is just attractive, it's not self focused. You know what else humility is? It's peaceful. You know, we're in this series on joy, and I, and I hope that you can, I didn't know exactly how to relate this to you other than just to say it as frankly as I can. Pride is ugly, and it feels ugly, and you know it. When you are prideful, when you one-up someone in your mind, or in a story, or with your wardrobe, or with your house, or with your bank account, or with your fill-in-the-blank, It feels ugly. It feels like a betrayal of humanity and you know it. But when in these rare moments by God's grace and mercy we practice humility, what does that feel like? Good. Joyous. Peaceful. Psalm 131 I'm going to read to you because I think it pictures and captures this peacefulness of humility more than anything else and I would Admonish you, encourage you to put Psalm 131 to memory. It's only three verses. But listen to the psalmist reflection here on himself. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child as my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. My head is not raised high, my eyes are not lifted up, but instead I cultivate quiet and stillness in my soul like a child. Do you not want that? It's amazing how powerful humility can be. Dostoevsky said, loving humility is a terrible force. It's the strongest of all things, and there's nothing like it. And then Paul, of course, is calling us to this joy that can be found in humility. This joy that can be found not in making a name for ourselves, but having God name us. Just like Lena in this baptism, God is naming her as his child. Isaiah 43 says, I have called you by name. Stop trying to name yourself. It's exhausting. It's miserable. It's ugly and you're tired. Because pride is taxing. But humility is refreshing and peaceful and joyous. And it's embodied in Christ. And Paul is calling us to be like Christ in his humility, which leads to unity. Be very easy to close in prayer right there. But give me two minutes. Because if I closed in prayer right there, while we might be convicted of our pride and inspired to humility, one small problem. Christ is not simply our example but He's our Savior. And so if we simply closed in prayer with the admonition, go and be humble like Christ. What happens when you're not humble like Christ? What happens when you are prideful? What happens when you do one-up others? What happens when pride characterizes your life more than humility? Just be like Him. And then we slip into moralism. If Christ is only our example. But you know what? Christ is not only our example. Paul, in fact, ends the text by saying he's also our Savior. You see, Christ was so humble that his humility led him in perfect obedience to the cross. And guess what happened on the cross? Christ died for your pride. And Christ died for the fact that you're not humble. And that I'm not. And Christ died for the fact that we are selfishly ambitious. And Christ died for the fact that we can't get over trying to make a name for ourselves. He's not simply our example. But he's our savior. And gosh you want to talk about humility. Even as a young kid I've always been fascinated with Christ silently, obediently hanging on the cross. When he could come down in one second. And make everything right. But he stood there. And people called him names. So he could name us. And people spit on him. Can you imagine what that was like physically? In fact can you imagine what it's like as a father. To watch your son spat upon. How could he do this? Because he's an unconventional humble king who's not only our example, but he's our savior. And it doesn't end like that. Christ will not always be in that position. In fact, it's important for us to note that Christ is no longer on the cross. And Christ right now, while in humility, actually sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning. And one day, Paul's text tells us Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to this humble King who is your example, but even more importantly is your Savior. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the exhortation that you've given us in your Word to be transformed, to be unified, and to do so by being humble we're just bad at it. And so we pray that you would forgive us for being bad at humility, and that you would transform us and empower us for humility to become the crowning characteristic of our lives like it is of yours, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.